0: We've looked at the theological and philosophical roots of hermeneutics. By this point in your study, you've looked at the context. You've looked at the canonical, the literary, the historical. You've looked at the immediate context. You've read through your passage and through your book multiple times. You've written down key observations. You've asked questions of the text. You've gone through and identified various parts of speech. You've block diagrammed the passage, so you should know the flow of the thought and the train of thought from the author. You've identified and studied various key terms in the passage. You've gone into lexicons and dictionaries and word books, and you've studied out those words and figured out how they're used in the Bible and extra-biblical texts. And then you've taken those definitions and you've read them back into your text just to make sure that they make sense. So by this point, you should have a pretty good idea of what your passage means. If you go through that process, by this point, you should know what the passage means already. And up until this point, this has been the course that we were given in seminary. This is the process the pastors go through when we study a passage. There is a little bit of a difference When we go forward from here, typically we would go into the original language and we would start studying the syntax syntax, how words relate to one another in the original language. But I can't do that today because we would have to take two years to teach Greek and Hebrew. But I bring that up for this reason, because a lot of times people think, well, I'm not going to seminary. I've never had Greek and Hebrew. Ergo, I can't study the Bible. And I can't study the Bible as well as other people because I don't have that training. That's not true. Like I said, if you go through this process, if you just take everything you've learned so far, go home, pick a passage, and go through that process, you'll know your passage. 99% of the time, you will understand the passage when you're done. There are a few times where you're going to go in and you're going to study out the passage, do everything we've said, and you're going to come to the end of it and go, I don't know what that particular verse is talking about. I'm confused. These are called interpretive challenges. And you have to be able to overcome them. And you have to be able to overcome them without going back and taking three years of Greek and Hebrew. How do you do that? You do that, We're going to, I'm going to show you a couple of ways to do it today, but the biggest difference is you're going to be relying on resources. Now, before I say any further on resources, let me say something about resources. Sometimes there's this thought, if I use resources, then I'm not actually studying the Bible. If I use tools or the writings of other people, then that's somehow a deficient form of study and that's not good enough. The truth is, everyone uses resources. There's not a person in the world who has ever studied the Bible, well, at least not correctly, who has ever studied the Bible and did not use the work of other people to help them understand the text. Take your favorite theologians of history. Every single one of them had a library full of books they use lexicons dictionaries grammars exegetical summaries notes from seminary professors exegetical digests commentaries everybody uses resources these are tools that are you that are provided to you so that you can understand the text and by having the right tools having the right resources understanding the basic principles of hermeneutics understanding some theology you can interpret the bible without going to seminary So, how can you deal with some of these interpretive challenges? I'll give you three different ways you can do it. First, logically. Logic is reasoning conducted or assessed according to strict principles of validity. God has made you in his image. Unlike the animals, you have the ability to think rationally and logically. And... When we fail to think according to the strict principles of validity, we engage in what's called logical fallacies. And these are common in debates and these are common in interpretation. People use logical fallacies in interpretation. Let me uh, give you an example. This from, comes from D.A. Carson's. This is a poem called Why Are Fire Engines Red? Listen to the logic of this little poem. Here's how this poem answers it They have four wheels and eight men. Four plus eight is 12. 12 inches makes a ruler. A ruler is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth sails the seven seas. The seven seas have fish. The fish have fins. The fins hate the Russians. The Russians are red. Fire engines are always Russian. So they're red. Is that good logic? It's a little faulty, isn't it? Now, Just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard people use the Bible that way? Okay. And they come up with some of the most illogical, crazy conclusions and heretical conclusions that you can possibly imagine. Bible interpretation, studying the Bible, does not mean you check your logic at the door and say goodbye to logic. D.A. Carson provides a helpful definition of logic. He says it this way, logic is an analysis and evaluation of the ways of using evidence to derive correct conclusions. That author gathered, that, the author of the poem, or the person in the poem, gathered a whole bunch of evidence. The problem was not the evidence. The problem was how they related the evidence together and how they used the evidence. Because a lot of what the poem said, the basic facts, are simply true. Fire engines do have four wheels. And a lot of times fire engines do carry eight people and 12 inches do make a ruler and Queen Elizabeth was a ruler. Those are all true facts. It's just how they related them to each other and the conclusions they developed from them. And we are susceptible to the same kind of faulty logic when we come to the text of Scripture. We use um, what are called logical fallacies, like the logical fallacy of a false disjunction. This is where someone presents a problem, and they say, it's either A or it's B. No third option. You can either pick A or you can pick B. And this is often done with two different texts being pitted against each other. If this text means this, this text must mean this. Take these two verses, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Anybody remember the context of Galatians 3.28? What is he talking about there? He's talking about salvation. First Timothy two twelve. But I do not want I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now some will use a false disjunction here. And they will say, look, Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says that in Christ, all distinctions are removed. And therefore, 1 Timothy 2.12 is not prohibiting women from teaching in the church. Do you see the false disjunction? This is where the egalitarians get the idea that all positions in the church are open to both male and female. But Paul in Galatians is not speaking about equality in Christ, excuse me, he's not talking about roles in the church, he's talking about equality in Christ in salvation, that God by his grace saves both male and female, regardless of sex. In 1 Timothy, he's not talking about salvation, he's talking about roles and functions within the church. And the egalitarian position would say, look, if there are distinctions between men and women in their roles, that must be that they are not equal to each other in their dignity and their essence and their position before men. Here's their position. Men and women are equal, therefore all roles in the church are open to both men and women, or you can say men and women have different roles and thus are not equal. That's the false disjunction. They're either equal and everybody can do everything in the church, or they're not equal and you have different roles. Logical fallacy. Both can be true. Galatians 3.28 can say men and women are equal in salvation, and 1 Timothy 2 can give appropriate roles for men and women in the church. Another logical fallacy, unwarranted associative jumps. We're not going to go through them all. There's a whole bunch of logical fallacies. I'm just going to give you two logical fallacies. This you saw in the poem a few minutes ago. Four wheels, eight men equals 12. There are 12 inches in a ruler. Those are unwarranted associative jumps. D.A. Carson says this logical fallacy occurs when a word or phrase triggers off an associated idea, concept, experience that bears no close relation to to the text at hand, yet is used to interpret the text. So I read through a text, and I see a word that I just key in on, And I pick up that word and I run with it, like this one. Tell me if you've had anyone do this to you. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Look, he said all things. I did a lexical study on this. You know what all means? All. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then I can just begin to think about what all means to me. As my list grows, the verse seems to become more and more relevant and meaningful to me. When I'm faced with a difficult circumstance, it doesn't matter what it is. I can do all things. When I want to take on a new project, like fixing a leaky roof or remodeling the kitchen, I don't need any training. I can do all things. Time to start renovating. The five-year-old boy hears it and thinks, I can do all things in Christ. So he jumps off the sofa thinking he can fly around the living room. Someone else might want to sing solo at church. Not because they have singing lessons and not because someone told them they're a good singer, but because they can do all things. Do you see how we can apply this illogically and make jumps and associations that this text is not talking about? It's a logical fallacy. When Paul says he can do all things, in the context, he's logically excluding some things. What is Paul talking about here in Philippians 4? During hardships, being content. Whether I have a lot or I have a little. Whether I have food to eat or whether I don't have food to eat. I can be content in all of them. D.A. Carson says of this passage, the word all cannot be completely unqualified i.e., jump over the moon, integrate complex mathematical equations in my head, turn sand into gold. So it is commonly expounded as a text that promises Christ's strength to the believers in all that they have to do or in all that God sets before them to do. The word all here is qualified. Okay, the last logical argument we're going to look at. The law of non-contradiction. Two statements cannot be contradictory. If both of them are true, they cannot contradict each other. Like these two statements, both of them referring to Judas. And he went away and hanged himself. And then you go into another passage in Acts 1. Acts 1.18, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Are those two contradictory? falling headlong and hung himself. Are they contradictory? Are both of them talking about his death? So if they're both talking about the same person and they're both talking about his death, can they contradict? Not logically, can they? And if you apply basic logic, you would have to say, well, if it's talking about the same person and it's talking about the same event, these two would have to be consistent with each other. And so falling headlong would have to be another way of saying he hung himself. They're logically consistent. They're not contradictory. To be contradictory, one missed, one has to make the other impossible. Let me give you an example. Here are two statements that would be impossible. Judas died fighting the Romans. Judas died when he hung himself. Why are those two contradictory? Because they both can't be true at the same time. He either died when he hung himself or he died fighting the Romans. But he didn't do both. When we interpret a passage our interpretation can't result in the passage being contradictory. If it contradicts itself, you've got the wrong interpretation. I'll give you an example. Matthew 26, 26. Now, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after bless- a blessing, he broke it, and giving it to his disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. That last little phrase. This is my body. If I interpret that literally, what is he saying? Right. Jesus is sitting there holding a piece of bread. And while sitting there, here, I'll use this, the piece of bread. And while sitting there, that is his body and this is his body. To take this literally would be impossible. Jesus cannot hold his entire body in his hand while sitting there in a chair. It's an impossible interpretation. The logical interpretation here is that this is a figurative expression. The the bread represents his body. It's a symbol that points to his body. But then there's the argument that the Catholic Church makes. Do you know what their ultimate argument is to say that that is a literal statement that this is his body? This is actually in the literature. They use another logical fallacy all things are possible to God, and they essentially take that phrase just like they do, people do. Philippians 4, and they say, well, this can be logically inconsistent because God can do anything. God does not want you to check your logic at the door. Yes, ma'am. Around the 5th century, uh, it started kind of innocent, and it kind of morphed over about a 1,000 years. Uh, The actual idea that the bread changes and becomes the literal body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ didn't come around until about the 1100s with Thomas Aquinas. And it didn't become official Catholic teaching until the 1200s at the Fourth Lateran Council. I don't think it was one person sitting down and saying, hey, let's alter this. Um, it, was a, it was a combination of an allegorical hermeneutic, a spiritualized hermeneutic, where it says, well, we're, we're going to spiritualize this, and then taking it over literally, and then trying to find a way. Thomas Aquinas sat down and just tried to find a way to explain how this could be my body, and he used Aristotelian philosophy to pull it off. But I don't think there was a a one time moment where someone sat down and said, "Hey, let's twist this and change it." It just kind of morphed over the years until Thomas Aquinas finished it up. Okay, so all of this to say, basic logic is a vital necessity when you're interpreting the Bible, and if your interpretation violates the basic rules of logic, you've got it wrong. Some resources to help you with logic and fallacies, exegetical fallacies, D.A. Carson, that's where the quotes came from. There's probably other resources you can use for basic logic. There's the Fallacy Detective, if you want to find um, logical fallacies. That's geared more towards children, but it makes it nice and simple, and you 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 won't get lost reading it. Okay, so that's one way you can resolve problems in the Bible. Just use some basic logic. And if it violates the basic rules of logic, it's wrong. What's another way? You can resolve it contextually. And you can resolve it contextually by looking at the immediate context, or you can resolve it by looking at the broader context. A text without context is a pretext. I knew somebody knew it. Stripping a passage from its context is the stock and trade of false teachers. It's what they do. It's what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness. And even the unintentional failure to examine context is one of the primary reasons people struggle to understand passages. They go to a passage and they get confused, but they're looking at one little verse, and they fail to broaden out and look at the full context. And I just want to show you this, how simple, big controversies can be resolved um, very easily take for example genesis 1 big debate on what does the word day mean genesis 1 verse 5 and he called the the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day verse 8 and god called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day verse 13 and there was evening And there was morning, a third day, and it goes on like that. Some people will tell you day here refers to a long period of time, millions and billions of years. Other people will say it means 24 hours. Can you look at the immediate context and figure out which one is true? What tells you in the immediate context what's true? There was evening and there was morning. He defines it for you. He tells you what he means by it. You can also look at the broader biblical context. And you can go to other places where Moses talks about this issue. Does Moses mention creation anywhere else in his five books? Specifically seven days? He does. Anybody know where it is? Exodus. Exodus 20. He's giving the law. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. The Hebrew word for day here is the exact same one he used in Genesis 1. Is this talking about a 24-hour period or is this talking about millions and billions of years? 24-hour period. Okay, but then people say, yeah, but that's not talking about creation. Next verse. For in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Why should you rest on the seventh day? Because God rested on the seventh day. And it wouldn't make any sense for Genesis 1 to be describing millions and billions of years while Exodus is talking about 24-hour periods. The two are the same. By the way, if you go back to Genesis 1 again, we talked about lexical studies last week. That phrase, one day. If we were to look at the rest of the places in the Bible where this phrase is found, one day. And you can do this with Bible software. We just want to look at the places where this phrase is used. Does the Bible ever use the phrase one day to refer to anything other than a 24-hour period? Genesis 27, verse 45. Until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you did to him, then I will send and get you from there. Why should I be bereaved of you both in one day? Genesis 33, 13. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Numbers 11, 19. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days. 1 Samuel 9, verse 15. Now a day before, literally one day before, Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, Ezra 10, verse 17, he finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the month. Jonah 3, 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. Did any of those refer to millions and billions of years? Not a single one of them. And in fact, if you go and look in the broader context of the Bible, Every time you find that phrase, one day, it means only one thing, a 24-hour period and nothing else. And every time you find the Hebrew word day with a number next to it, it means only one thing. You can do that with the phrase one day, two day, three day, four day, five day, six day, seven day, every one of those in Genesis, and it will always mean a 24-hour period no matter where it's used. The broader context is very helpful, isn't it? It makes it very clear. Questions on that? Yes. Yeah, speaking of, uh, of interpretive challenges, I should have put that one in here. A day is as a thousand years, yeah. But if you're actually just going off the text and the immediate and the broader context, Genesis 1 is a very simple text to understand. The only people who are confused by it are the people who are getting their information from somewhere other than what the text says. There is another place that immediate context will be really helpful in understanding the passage. Hebrews 6. Anybody know this passage? This is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. And it really doesn't have to be. Because if you just pay attention to the immediate context, the the passage makes sense. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 4. For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. What's the controversy about this passage? Anybody know? I'm sorry? Yeah, this is saying you can lose your salvation. And their argument goes like this, verse 4, they've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. That's, that seems to be a reference to regeneration. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. This sounds like they've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, they've tasted of the good word of God. This sounds like he's talking about believers. And these are believers that apparently have turned away and now they cannot be renewed again to repentance. Ergo, you can lose your salvation. Anybody heard this before? And by the way, you can go into the words and grammar of those 3 verses and you can stretch them to make it fit. And it'll sound really good. But if you just Keep reading. He solves the problem for you. If you just expand out and look at the context, verse 7. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is unfit and close to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Notice verse 7 begins with four. He's explaining what he just said. And then he gives an illustration of rain bringing forth vegetation. The rain falls and soaks the ground. And as a result, the ground produces vegetation. Vegetation here can be referred to plants that are edible, either for human consumption or for livestock. And he calls it useful. It's usable vegetation. It's worthwhile. It's good to have. Notice in the rest of verse 7, is useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. You might say for those who it is cultivated for. When the ground receives the rain, it produces useful vegetation and it receives a blessing. God is pleased with it. But then there is the opposite situation. Verse 8, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is unfit and close to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Yield here refers to causing to grow. Thorns refers to a common weed that's harmful to grain. Thistles refers to any thorny plant, typically plants that you don't want. So the writer here, in explaining people turning away from Christ, illustrates by pointing back to two kinds of plants. One that is useful, one that produces something that's edible. Let me say it another way, one that produces fruit, and the other that is not useful but harmful. The useful fruit-bearing plants will receive a blessing. The non-useful thorny plants will be burned. Everybody, anybody picking up where he's going here? What's the argument he's making? This isn't talking about believers losing their salvation. This is the same kind of language you find throughout the rest of Scripture. Matthew 7, 16, you will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? By the way, those are the same two terms that he used to describe in Hebrews 7. The writer of Hebrews is merely teaching that believers will produce fruit. And he goes to the Hebrews there and says, look, if you're a believer, you're going to have good fruit. And if you're not, You turn away, that's bad fruit, and it's evidence that you are not a believer. By simply understanding the immediate context, this controversial passage becomes really simple to understand. Questions? Last one. You can also use theology. That is to say, you can use your understanding of systematic theology, your understanding of basic theology, to help you understand what the passage means. Systematic theology isn't the lens through which you interpret the text. You don't take your theology and read it into the passage. But systematic theology is good guardrails to remove bad options and to remove options that you shouldn't even consider. And I want to go to a passage that we looked at this past week in Bible study. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness. But is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What is the difficult part of that? Theologically, what would be the hard part of that sentence, that verse? Not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How is that interpreted? everybody's going to be saved. God is not willing for any to perish. Okay, well, let's start just by, just don't pull out a lexicon or a commentary. Just put some guardrails up with your your theology. Is he saying that God is not willing for any to perish, meaning that everyone is going to go to heaven? How do you know that? Yeah. Yeah. Because if you go back to 2 Peter 3, that opening section is all about the day of the Lord where he is coming in judgment to judge the ungodly. If all are going to come to repentance, what's the point of the judgment? Basic context there would mess that up. Okay, since God is not willing for any to perish, does that mean man is now completely responsible for choosing Jesus? That's the other argument that's used. Proof text for free will. Man is able to come to Jesus on his own. God is not willing for anyone to perish. God wants all men to uh, to repent. And it's man's free will that just obstinately refuses and doesn't come. So God isn't able to bring them to repentance. Does that work theologically? John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh is unable to please God, has no desire to. All that the Father gives me will come. You see, your basic understanding of theology sets guardrails. This can't contradict any of those. If you understand basic logic and the, the doctrine of inspiration that it's written by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to find a contradiction. All right, so here's an important question. So what does it mean? Let's ask some theological questions. Who is doing the willing here? Not willing for any to perish. Who is that referring to? Who's the subject of the willing? God. Now, you read some commentaries, they'll, they'll have a little debate. Is it the Father or is it Jesus? We won't go into that today. Okay, we'll just say it's God. By the term willing, without looking at a lexicon, did Peter mean to say that God will not permit any to perish? When Peter said God is not willing for anyone to perish, did he mean God will not permit them to perish? That God decreed that no one will perish? Is that what Peter is saying? I mean, if we have a basic understanding of who God is, and a basic understanding of His what they call the decretive will of God, that what God wills, that is what he decrees, what he chooses to do will come to pass. And so if this passage was saying that God decreed all men to come to repentance, then we would have to conclude that all men will actually come to repentance. Isaiah 46. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My counsel will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Does that sound like God can decree something and it not come to pass? Which means if that's the way we're going to interpret it, we've just caused the text to be contradictory. This is where people say that God willed for no one to perish. But sinful men exercised their free will and prevented God from accomplishing his decree. So they would say in 2 Peter 3, God decreed to save all, but not all men are willing to be saved. And in their rejection, God's will is thwarted. That's a great question. She asks, so who's God? Again, if we just apply some biblical theology can that be true? Can man thwart God's will? No. Job twenty three thirteen and 14, but he is unique and who can turn him? And what his soul desires that he does for he performs what is apportioned for me and many such decrees are with him. The opening question there assumes the answer. Who can turn him? Answer, nobody. Nobody can change his mind. And what his soul desires that he does, this refers to his decreed will. No one can turn him from accomplishing what he decides he is going to do. And so if God decided he was going to bring all men to repentance, then all men would come to repentance and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a real encouragement at the end of Romans 8, by the way. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Not even the free will of man. And no, I'm not endorsing free will. Do you see how just basic good theology can hem you in a little bit? Whatever the phrase means, it cannot deny what we've already said. So how can we understand this passage while not denying what we know about God and his sovereignty? Peter's use of the term willing obviously can't be refer- referring to his de- God's decretive will. Is it referring to his prescriptive will? Anybody remember what the pre- prescriptive will of God is? Prescriptive will refers to God's commands, what God has prescribed for you to do. When it, says, when it says that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, is he saying that God has told you and commanded you, you are not allowed to perish, you must come to repentance. That doesn't even make sense, does it? Because if he actually told you that, then he would have to punish you if you perish but perishing is punishment. The best way to view this, just applying basic theology, the best way to view this is that this is referring to his optative will. That is, it's expressing his wish, his desire. God wants, he wants all men to repent. He wants all to turn from their sin. He wants and desires all to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. This expresses God's loving affection and his care for his people and for all men. There will never be any person who goes to hell even though they desired repentance. There is no one today in hell who truly, genuinely wanted to repent And God was like, sorry, you're not in my plan. That's not my will. Is that a denial of election? Yeah, you can say this is referring directly back to believers themselves. But I would also say that the doctrine of election does not remove your responsibility. God elects. You're still responsible for your sin. You're so responsible when you say, no, I'm not going to repent. Every person who goes to hell goes to hell because they willfully chose to refuse to repent. They chose their sin over turning to Christ and repentance. And I really think that's a major part here. Because, by the way, when Jesus did his altar call, come to me, some of you the invitation was extended to everybody not everybody was elected but again you have god's sovereignty and you have man's responsibility and what peter's getting at here is it's not because god is un is unloving towards you or ungracious towards people that's not the reason why people perish people don't perish because god has failed in something people perish because they choose their sin all i'm getting at is The gospel call was made to everyone. And it was made to everyone for a reason. Because what he says in 2 Peter 3, God desires all to come to repentance, describes his love and his care for all. And if I have a view of God where God elects this small group and then says, Well, I could care less about those others. I have a wrong view of God. You are to go into all the nations and give the gospel. You're to give the gospel to every person you meet because God desires all to repent. Now, I wouldn't say it's free will. I would just say you're, you're personally responsible. And if you just look at the rest of this verse, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness. That is to say, The Lord does not, he's not running late. He's not hesitating. All these people coming out saying, well, where is he? He isn't here yet. It's not that he got held up and he he can't make it. He's delaying for a reason. He's not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you. He's patient. Why is he patient? Because he wants people to repent. Does that make sense? This is expressing the desire of God and the love of God that he wants people to repent. Ultimately, when you apply greater your broader theology, this ultimately will be the elect but it doesn't change his desire. The gospel is to go to all men for a reason, because all men are responsible when they reject it. Yes, God is angry with the wicked every day. Yes, God will judge the wicked. But 1 Peter 3, I think he's emphasizing, you perish because of your choice, not because of God's. And we we have this tension of God's election your responsibility. Both of them are true. God elects and you're still responsible. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility are parallel tracks. They're two lines that run parallel to each other and they go infinitely into the distance and you never see where those two intersect in the Scripture. And so, my ultimate point here is that in this passage, Good theology cuts out a whole bunch of meanings and interpretations, and it leaves you with some very limited options, doesn't it? Okay, let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, We thank you for our time this morning that we can come together uh, to worship, to study your word. Uh, We do thank you for um, Mother's Day. We thank you for our moms and the gift that they are to us, and what a blessing they are. And uh, we do ask that you would help us this morning to worship you in a way that is pleasing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.